0: God, may we experience your love, God, in such a way that it causes us to want nothing else in this world. God, here in the midst of just a heart and an attitude of worship, God, we just, we just state, we declare, God, that we need you. God, we need more of you. And Father, we pray for your hand on this local church. God, we are so grateful for the ways that you are pursuing us, for the ways that you are leading us. God, for the ways that you are moving here in this local congregation. And Father, in this next year, as we get ready to take some big steps, as we get ready to launch our first multi-site location, and um, God, we just continue to say that we want nothing apart from your hand and your will for this people. And so, Father, we are a people dependent on you. God, we pray for the word that's about to be spoken. God, we pray for your word. and. Guys, ask for anything that, that that's of the flesh, anything that's of me, that you just strip that away. God, anything that's from you, God, your spirit would speak to our hearts in such a way that it would cause change. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Aaron, and uh, and I'm on staff as the Alma campus pastor, which still is an exciting new thing for me. And Lord willing... January of 2020, we are excited to be launching a new campus in Alma, Michigan, and are looking forward to ways that God's going to bless not just Alma and Gratiot County, but also here in Isabella County as we continue to see God just do amazing things here in our community. So glad that you're here. We've been making our way through the gospel of Mark throughout the summer, and today we are approaching Mark chapter 6. This last year, uh, I hit my 15-year anniversary of my high school graduation, uh, which some of you are like, he's a young guy up there, barely starting. Uh, for me, it feels kind of old, I think, hitting 15 years. And our high school, they tried to put a reunion together, but there was a lack of interest. Uh, I don't know if I would have gone anyways, and we ended up not reunioning uh, for our 15-year, which is kind of sad. Uh, many of you know Jeff Heishon on staff. He and I are part of the same graduating class. I don't know if either of us were planning on uh, going to the reunion anyways. We had missed our 10-year reunion. I feel like Facebook has kind of changed the allure of reunions, right? Like before Facebook, you had to be curious about what Steve's doing, and you know, like you could Facebook stalk anybody, or you couldn't Facebook stalk anybody you wanted to find out about, but now you can jump online and you can see exactly who so-and-so married and see how they're doing. You can see pictures of the kids. It takes some of the allure out. but, you know, there's just something about going back to your hometown. Um, for some of us, I think it's a wonderful feeling. Um, for others, I think it feels a little bit weird. I know for myself, you know, even having the new title of pastor, I feel like that's a little bit of a loaded, uh, a loaded title that comes with it. And so you, add, you tell someone that you're a pastor and there's, two directions. One is that they change the subject as quickly as they possibly can because they don't know how to respond. Um, or the other direction, they, uh, you know, they, they start confessing and explaining why they haven't been in church for a while. There's no in-between in there. But you know, for myself, going back to my hometown, there's also the added just feeling of, of curiosity, like how are people going to respond? Like, I absolutely love what I do. I love the church. I love talking about Jesus. Uh, But if I'm really honest, I'd be curious what some of my classmates would think if they knew the, you know, crazy things I did when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And I wasn't too wild by any means, but would there be a few of them that would snicker and say, like, really? Like, that guy? That guy ended up going into ministry. It's it's kind of this, this weird thing. Uh, this summer, we're making our way through the book of Mark, and I think Mark, uh, in each chapter, as he's talking about the life of Christ, uh, he's laying out just the, the fact that Jesus was a man of action, that everything he, do- he did was done with such intentionality, it was done with such purpose, and, and he's kind of laying out these themes as he's making his way through, he's teaching his disciples, he's, te- he's teaching the crowds, uh, and one of the amazing things about Jesus is nothing could deter him from his goal. There, there's nothing that would uh, cause him to get off mission, Uh, But here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus makes a stop back in his hometown of Nazareth, Uh, and it's even Jesus has a hard time going back home. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles with me, we're in Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you and you're tech savvy, you can open up from your Bible app. Uh, But I would encourage you to, to mark up your Bible as we're making our way through Mark. And just a reminder for you, if you haven't been following along, we are doing a summer reading challenge. So the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long. We're doing one chapter a week. And so if you're following along this week, after today, uh, read through Mark chapter 6. And there is so much more in these scriptures than we could possibly cover in uh, a 30-minute message. And so be following along, be reading along. Uh, If you either forgot or didn't know about the reading challenge, it's really easy to catch up. Just read ahead um, all the way through Mark chapter 6. But let's follow along as I read from Mark 6, starting in verse 1. It says Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples when the sabbath came he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed where did this man get these things they asked what's this wisdom that has been given to him what are these remarkable miracles he is performing isn't this the carpenter isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph Judas and Simon aren't his sisters here with us and they took offense at him And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And it says Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, we just heard last week from Pastor Allen as we looked at Mark chapter five, that Jesus recently just raised a girl to life. He's been healing. Uh, he, crowds are following him all around. Uh, he's hit such a level that he even has, has an, an entourage, which if you wonder, like at what point have you officially made it in life? I think when you have a group of people that are following along, uh, that is huge. Uh, it's kind of like a TMZ situation wherever Jesus goes. The crowds are thronged around him. If it was a modern day, he'd be on the cover of every magazine. He's gotten a lot of, of celebrity status. But he goes home to Nazareth, and the people snicker. And they say, isn't that the carpenter's son? Right? They, they acknowledge his ministry in his hometown, but they ask questions like, like where did he get these things? Like, come on, they, they remembered him before he was famous. Now, why do the people respond this way? Jesus has humble roots and they know it. He's just a country boy at heart in their eyes. You know, I think the old adage is true that familiarity breeds contempt. Isn't that Mary's son? You know, even that statement carries some weight. It's it's, it's an uncommon way to refer to Jesus. Like, by all accounts, they would have normally said, Isn't that Joseph's son? And you wonder, the rumors of his illegitimate birth, were they still swirling around where Jesus grew up? What effect did the Nazarene's unbelief have on Jesus? Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. It says that his ministry was actually limited by their lack of faith. Uh, And it's interesting to see that Jesus did not throw miracles at people against their will. The last few weeks, we've been making our way through Mark, and Jesus has been teaching his disciples and his followers some major themes. And one of the major themes, I think, if you follow along in the messages, is the importance of faith. And the unbelief of the people here in Nazareth, it actually hinders God's work. So I want to pose a question to you today. Does unbelief hinder God's work in your own life? Does unbelief prevent God from working in ways that he wants to in your life and through you? Are you expecting God to do something big? Are you expecting something incredible to happen around you or through you because of an amazing God? Or maybe you hear other people sharing about, you know, God moments and God showing up and God coming through. And you wonder, is that ever going to really happen for me? When you face a crisis, are you quick to lean into God for an answer? Is your first step to to intercede and say, God, would you help me out of this situation? I don't see a way out. Or, if you're honest, do you hold to the old cliche that God helps those who help themselves? And you try to solve the problem in your own power and you don't lean into what God wants to teach you. I think there's a similar challenge for the church and the church is all of us together, us corporately. Do we have a big view or a small view of God? Almost a century ago, A.W. Tozer said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. How much more true is that statement today? We want to be a big faith church filled with big faith people. We believe in a God who still does miracles, and we want to live lives dependent on the Holy Spirit to be working in us and through us, to expect and celebrate and see what God is doing through this gospel community. And please, God, we do not want to be a faithless church, and we never want to hinder what God wants to do here. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us is commissioned to share the news about Jesus with those that we meet. But often when we think about being on mission, our mind immediately goes to being overseas. And while international missions is incredibly important, there is also a mission field right here in central Michigan. But how do we also reach people in our hometowns? Our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, our family. What what does it actually mean to be on mission, to be missional, right where we're at? Now, the amazing thing about this local church is that I believe there are many people here that are living this out on a regular basis. I mean, you look at something last week like Vacation Bible School, which its reach is so much bigger than just what happens here uh, in this building. Uh, Seeds are planted in hundreds and hundreds of kids. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, you know, being in youth ministry for a number of years here at Community Church is amazing how many of those seeds uh, will actually bloom and produce fruit years down the road as they're teenagers and adults. Uh, people invited friends, people invited kids, people invited families to come and participate. Hundreds of volunteers rolled up their sleeves and were part of sharing the gospel together to an entire group of kids. And there was more than one moment, as you look around at this amazing set, as you look at all the different pieces that go into it, where we wondered if it would actually come together. By the grace of God, God brought it all to completion. As a a result, dozens of kids came to put their faith in Christ. families have gotten connected to church. And church, we have to be about the work of God, what God wants to do wherever we go. To be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is doing around us. So, here at the beginning of Mark 6, though, we see that Jesus hits a roadblock. He's rejected by his hometown. And we can see what immediately proceeds starting in verse 6. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread. No bag, no money on your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay where you are until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. It says the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus here, he's sending out his disciples, his, his 12 men that are closest to him, his inner circle, out to do ministry. know, as I was studying this this last month, it was interesting to think about the emo- emotional nature of this moment. Like, wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to send out the 12 for the very first time apart from Jesus after, like, a, like a victory when they were riding an emotional high, when Jesus had, had healed someone, when something incredible had happened. But instead, he sends them off after an emotional low in his hometown. As a reminder, his disciples are not exactly the A-squad. Uh, if, if I were sending out this particular group of 12 guys, I'd be a little bit curious about how it's going to play out in the long run. Several were fishermen. One was a former tax collector for Rome. A couple of them were quick-tempered. One of them was a revolutionary. One was a traitor and not a true believer at all. All of them were very common men. These men lacked spiritual understanding. Jesus was constantly having to explain things to them after the fact. They lacked humility. They often lacked faith. They lacked commitment. They lacked power. These men were always getting into trouble. They were missing the point of Christ's teachings. They were lashing out at people who were different. They were saying the wrong things. They were walking away from their commitment to Jesus. And these were just a few of the many failures and problems with the disciples. But in spite of their weaknesses, Jesus used these men to turn the world upside down for his glory. And if God can use these guys to accomplish his purpose, Uh, That just gives me incredible hope, I think, for for each of us to say that God can use anyone. Jesus had called these men to follow him a few chapters earlier, and anywhere from 18 months to several years has gone by where they've been watching Jesus. They've been following him. They've been listening to him teach. They've been seeing him perform miracles. Uh, Since he called them, Jesus had been training them intentionally so that he could send them out with the message of the gospel. This was the moment that they had been waiting for. And this passage gives us the details of Jesus' commissioning of his disciples for their very first missionary effort without him. So I think there are four principles that we can pull from this as we say, okay, how can we go and be about the work of God? And number one is this, that they go together. I think it's so interesting that Jesus sends them out in pairs. It's certainly consistent with the biblical value of ministry within the context of community. This way they could lean on each other for support and encouragement. And and in fact, their relationship, their friendship, their bond would serve as a witness to those that they were ministering to. I think this is also a way that Jesus highlights the importance of community. That there are friendships and bonds that are formed on mission. They could pray for each other and encourage each, each, each other. And when things got a little bit weird and the hosts maybe seemed a little strange, they could make faces at each other and kind of have that sense of empathy. We ask every single one of our community groups here at the church to have a missional focus, to have a shared sense of this is the outward part of our our gospel community that we're going to do to impact the world. And in the the midst of mission, in the midst of, of purpose, that walls have an amazing way of breaking down. I've been a part of so many groups where it just seems like there's not a closeness, there's, uh, there's not a knittedness. And after, after serving together, there's an amazing way to, of just unity that forms within the community. And if you don't happen to be in a community group and you've wanted to join one, at the very end of the summer, there'll be an opportunity for you to jump into one of these community groups here at the church. So they go together. Number two, they don't force the message of the gospel. You know, there are some people who love to argue Right? You give them a controversial sign in a group of people and they're just they thickest're th- ha- happy to go, ready to go. Uh, you set them loose on an online message board and you watch them argue every single atheist out there, they have no problem with it. And conviction can be good, but it's not always effective. Jesus tells his disciples to look for individuals who will welcome them in. It seems kind of strange to us to read this and think of them going into people's homes, but it's actually a much more common occurrence in the hospitality culture of this day. When there were fewer hotels down the road, it was not uncommon for people to welcome strangers as guests into their houses. But Jesus expected that some people would reject these men. He even warns them about it. And not that even they would be rejected themselves, but that the message they were sharing, the message of repentance, would be rejected. I remember when I first stepped into ministry, I was petrified that I wouldn't be convincing enough, that I wouldn't be able to be articulate enough to be able to convince young minds to, to trust and follow Jesus and it being this like huge burden. And there was this moment where I realized, this moment where it became clear, where I was reminded that God is the one who changes people's hearts, that God is the one that's pursuing every single one of us. And that it's actually much more effective for us to trust that he's going to use us. I don't know why he does, but he uses us even in our limited capacity. And that it's the Holy Spirit's work in someone's heart that causes them to shift and to change. And so I think the principle for us is to pull that we should be constantly on the lookout for those who are open to the gospel message. We should be constantly looking for those who, where we can see the Holy Spirit stirring in people's hearts. And if we're honest, I think many of us probably don't struggle with the holding the sign in, in the center of town and probably struggle more on the sense of not talking about our faith at all. And my challenge for you would be this. Maybe this week to pray that God would put something in front of you, that God would put someone in your path that you could be open and share your faith with. So don't force the message. Number three, trust God when we take risks. Jesus instructed them to go with little, to ultimately rely on strangers for hospitality. He encourages them to depend and trust in God. And that way, I think if when they got to the end, they wouldn't think they did it under their own power. And so what was Jesus trying to do by sending out his disciples without the essentials they needed? Jesus was training his disciples to trust him for their every need, especially for their daily needs. If the disciples were to have a roof over their heads at night and food on the table, the power of God would have to be real in and through them. Had the disciples been allowed to take their own provisions along, the response of the people to the gospel would have been harder to to gauge, and the faith of the disciples would not have been stretched. The disciples had heard a great deal of teaching from Jesus. They had learned a great deal of theology. But now they needed to learn to trust in him. I believe that Jesus' command to take no provisions was designed to create an environment of need where faith was required and where obedience was tested. The ultimate issue for God's people throughout history and continues today is not how much do you know, but it's who do you trust? Do you actually trust Jesus to provide? The disciples were about to experience the faithfulness of God in a new way by living and walking by faith, by trusting in His power and His faithfulness even when He's absent. And number four, God also equips those He sends out. You read through this passage and you see that the disciples' ministry actually is a direct reflection of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the disciples healed, they preached the gospel, they even had power over demons. They had a, an extension of Jesus' power in a way they had never experienced before. And I don't know if you can imagine the, the confidence that this must have built. They had watched and seen Jesus do these miraculous things, and I'm sure as time went on, they became less exciting and less less miraculous. They became used uh, to the fact that Jesus was going to do these miracles. And now, in this moment, it became the time for them to act, for them to have power, And there's a principle here that Christ's power goes with those he sends out. And if you feel unqualified, if you feel untrained, and that is keeping you from taking a step in a direction that you feel God may be calling you, then remember that Jesus will equip you for any task he calls you to. I love this reminder from 1 Corinthians 1. It says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Pastor Wally has shared this before, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And if God is calling you to something, he's going to equip you and he's going to prepare you to be able to be successful in that task. And so the disciples go out, they, get, they are successful, they're, they're sharing the gospel, people are being healed, they're casting out demons, and they return back to Jesus, and they're reporting all the things that they've done, they're telling them all the things that they've taught, I imagine, they're celebrating, they're giving high fives, and Jesus says, the scriptures say here in Mark 6, that he calls them away to rest. And he says, after this work, after this effort, that there is time where you need to recharge. But the crowds recognize Jesus, and they quickly surround them. A huge crowd comes around them of several thousand people, and the Bible says that Jesus sees the crowds, and he has compassion on them. So he begins to teach. He begins to heal. He begins to give more of himself. And you can imagine the disciples are his right-hand guys, right? They're, they're there in the midst of it, and they're, they're still serving. They're still giving. They're still exhausted, it's this particular passage in Mark 6 where Jesus, through a miracle, feeds the 5,000 with limited resources. And they get to the end of all this, this long day, and his disciples still need a break. So, what does Jesus do? Uh, the people are still all around them, they're, they're still crowding in, and Jesus says, Here, let, let me finish with the crowds. Uh, let, let me do the cleanup, let me make sure people get sent off on their way. Uh, let me finish this. You get into this boat. And you set out across the water. And we can read in verse 45 what happens next. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So hours and hours have passed, and the disciples are still an eyesight. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking here? Like, man, we cannot catch catch a break. We're stuck in another storm. This, This must be how we go. Like, Jesus sent us out here. What is going on? Two weeks ago, Pastor Wally shared the story in Mark 4 of Jesus calming the storm. I'm sure they remembered that moment, but Jesus isn't with them this time. Over the past several weeks and months, they had experienced Jesus' power, but this passage doesn't tell us if they tried to calm the storm themselves the way Jesus had. All we know is that they're stuck, that they've been working all night, that they're tired, that they're exhausted. And in the midst of this, this complete place of saying, we cannot get out of this mess on our own, Jesus walks out to them. He continues in verse 48. It says, he was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because all of them saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. The translation here is literally translated as him saying, I am. It was the very same words that God used in Exodus 3 to refer to himself. And in this moment, the gospel of Matthew chapter 14 is telling the exact same account. And it gives additional details from Peter's response. So after Jesus calls out, Peter asks, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus responds and says, come. Peter gets out of the boat. With his eyes on Jesus, he begins to walk on the water. Amidst all the wind and the waves and the inescapable storm, Peter is walking on the water, but waits in the midst of the wind and in the midst of the waves. As the storm is still raging, Peter, for just a moment, takes his eyes off Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus, he looks around at his surroundings, and he sees the waves, and he feels the wind and the spray of the water on his face, and he begins to sink. In that moment, he forgets about Jesus' miracles of feeding the multitudes. He forgets the healings. He forgets all about Jesus, what Jesus had said and done. And his faith, for just a moment, he wavers, and Jesus begins to sink. He takes his eyes off Jesus for just a second, and then he cries out, Lord, save me. His eyes go back to Christ. His faith is renewed. And Jesus so gently takes him by the hand and helps him back up on top of the water, and together they walk back to the boat. As the men get back to the boat, they climb inside, and immediately this storm ceases. And it says the disciples are still filled with wonder. And it seems they still had something to learn. So our question today is, why did Jesus allow them to experience the storm? Like, well, why hadn't he just rescued them out of it? If Peter's faith had not been challenged that day, he may have never gotten out of the boat. And if he did not get out of the boat, he may have never gone on to be the leader of the early church. So I believe that Peter's faith had to be Challenged. So for us today, we realize that there are times that our faith will inevitably be challenged. And when our faith is challenged, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to stay in the boat, or you're going to step out. And God is looking for people whose eyes are fixed on Christ, who are willing to allow their faith to fuel their vision and fuel their purpose. When God calls us to go, he wants us to reach beyond ourselves and begin living by his power. And to do this, I believe that we need a bold faith, to believe that nothing is impossible for God. So my question for you is, where is God calling you to step out of the boat, to to believe in him more? God wants you to step out of what you know is certain into what only is possible with God. And the amazing promise of God is that when we get out of the boat, he will not leave us alone. He will give us the tools to equip us to complete the job. He wants for us to step out in faith, to refuse to be frozen in fear, to not just stay where we know it's safe and where it's comfortable. He is the God of the impossible who promises to never leave you and to never forsake you. And so God is asking you to step out of the boat and to listen to his voice. He's the one who can calm the storms, remove the fear, and provide everything that is needed. And all you need to do is have the faith that God can do all the things that his word tells us he can. And so do you have that faith? Do you want that faith? The question this morning is, are you willing to step out in faith? Let's stand together as we worship.